is the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Good afternoon, David Clawton with you, Michael still on a bit of a break. In the next hour, more on the water buybacks for the Murray-Darling Basin and the money paid, storm damage in Victoria which claimed the life of a farmer and this strange grass they call hairy panic which has been tumbling across roads in the state's south. It was nearly to the roof of the bus when I went, had to go through it, yeah. Literally blocked the whole road. And what do you call it? I've heard of a lot of names, but yeah, it's hairy panic. (laughs) At work we're saying backside grass, not that other term. Uh, Someone called it angel wings once and I said to him I'd never heard anything angel about it ever. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. Um, More on that a little bit later this morning. 0467 922 684 is our SMS for your hairy panic experiences 0467 922 684 but first to biosecurity another 2.7 kilograms of illegally imported cooked meat has been seized this time at Adelaide airport and it highlights the risk of disease and pests coming into the country and why that alarms farmers the federal government announced changes to biosecurity levies this week and the freight sector is happy to Uh, with those changes, but it's offering even to pay more if the government could speed up biosecurity services. The new levies pay for things like container inspections, sniffer dogs at airports and x-ray machines in mail centres, and that all helps to keep pests and disease out. Farmers, fishers and foresters will have to stump up about 6% of the money needed for biosecurity, and they wanted a container levy introduced to cover the rising cost of biosecurity measures. Paul's ally from the Freight Alliance, however, which represents the import export uh, sector said they'd be happy to pay even more. It's a relatively modest increase to be honest so on the 1st of July last year we had an increase um, on what we call our full import declaration so every time there's a import consignment comes in a a declaration is made Uh, for air cargo was $38 it increased to $43 for sea cargo was $58 and and it increased to $63 so by about $5 per declaration. Um, bearing in mind, you've got about 4.2 million full import declarations a year, so, so that sum does add up. So the, we did hear a lot of discussion, and I remember talking to you about a different way of raising money, which is a levy on every container. So they didn't go that way. Why do you think that is? Look, I think that was a smart move. Um, again, you know, the way that was going to be administered, it was either going to be charged against um, the stevedores uh, at the point of uh, discharge or, or by the shipping lines. And look, by the time they would have paid that, added on some admin fee and the like, and by the time all those costs would have cascaded down the supply chain, um, I think those fees would have been further inflated. So to move away from a container levy, I think, was sensible. Um, and at, at the time, we, we suggested, look, you've been using these full import declarations now for, for you know, decades. Why not just continue using that? And uh, it appears that's the way that they've opted to go. So what impact do you think that those cost increases will have on the freight sector? Look, they're not significant. Um, it's an extra, like I said, about an extra $5 per full import declaration. Um, and... Um, that, that can be quite easily absorbed. Um, there's also going to be a, a more controversial one. They're going to now introduce a charge on low-value goods, so your internet trade, if you like. 
Um, so at the moment, any consignment that comes into the country under the value of $1,000 uh, doesn't require a formal declaration and hence is exempt from cost recovery fees. So now going forward, uh, the Department of Agriculture will be looking to collect about $27 million from that sector, which will translate to somewhere in the vicinity about, of about $0.40 cents, uh, more per low-value uh, import that comes in. Right. That will be imposed on um, the cargo reporters, so the likes of your DHLs and your FedExes and the like, um, and they'll, they'll look to build that into their, their, their freight rates and their charging regime. And in terms of um, the the freight sector, I mean, the cost of container transport at the moment's going up again, isn't it? Because of global conflicts and other, and other things. So yeah. I suppose you know, like to send a, a container these days is you know it's it's it's, it's about three thousand at the moment if it's, as an average cost around the world. Oh, look, it varies. You know, you've got you know. Out of Europe now, um, with the extra journeys around the Red Sea, it, it's it's even well beyond that. Plus surcharges, um, so it is very expensive. Um, though, look, coming back to what can be controlled here on shore, our views are that are on a couple of different fronts. One is on the yes, the importers are the risk creators; they should be paying a fee. Um, but we suggested, you know, that that five dollar fee, perhaps the importers could have even paid more if they would have got a better process on, on import. So at the moment, we've got a situation where importers are paying these uh, cost recovery fees, but they are facing massive delays in document assessment and at times inspections, which leads to thousands of dollars in um, uh, container detention costs when there's delays to return the empty containers, uh, extra storage and just missing contracts and the like. So. If the government would have gone down the path of saying, look, producers, don't worry about it at all, although you're going to be a beneficiary of biosecurity, we're not going to hit you up for this extra $47.5 million. We'll put it back on the risk creator, the importers. Um, so to recover that $47.5 million, it would have been an extra $11.50 or thereabouts per full import declaration that importers would have had to pay. And now I'm saying, why don't we even bump that up to, say, $20, a full import declaration, but deliver a top quality service for importers so they don't incur other well how could they do costs. that what do you what do you want them to do differently they they either they either need to modernize their systems or they need to put more staff and resources into service the antiquated processes that are there now more staff paul zelli from the freight alliance looking for some Improvements in biosecurity services. And the international student who was caught with 2.7 kilograms of pork when it came into Adelaide Airport uh, has had their visa cancelled. They also had some eggs and frangipani flowers which were sniffed out by a detected dog called Ghost. None of the goods were declared by the traveller on the incoming passenger card. On the country hour, it's 12 past 12. Love to hear from you about that if you're an importer or a farmer affected by some of these things. Or you just want to talk about... What do they call it? Panic? Panic? I can't remember what it's called now. Spindle grass. There's a few names coming in um, about hairy panic, which is a grass that's blocking roads in the south of the state. 0467 922 684. Um, Dave has uh, messaged in to say no shortage of spindle grass heads in the Trundle area. 
And uh, let's turn our attention now to biodiversity. There's a push for farmers to get better supported to turn part of their land into conservation areas. The Biosecurity Conservation Trust is working with landholders to protect endangered plants and wildlife. In turn, the farmers may receive compensation from the trust. Since its inception, the trust has 450 farmers involved, and in the past year, 91,000 hectares of farmland has been added to the Biodiversity Conservation Trust. Erica Nolosko is a principal researcher from Queensland, and she's touring the Central West this month to see what landholders are doing. She spoke with Tim Fuchs. It's quite varied, but many people, they just decide to protect the bush in their land, and that some of them are connected to the Biodiversity Conservation Trust. They just protect a part of their land, or they're doing management like rotational grazing that doesn't take as much into the soil and in the grasses. There are also people that uh, mix the bush with the croppings, and it enhances the soil and attracts wildlife, and protecting riparian areas or riverbanks as well, so we avoid erosion and let the vegetation pick up. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on and a lot of goodwill out there. What are they telling you about the reasons behind doing it? Most of these people, they do it for their love of nature. And, yeah, it's very intrinsic, like it comes from inside and they believe they're doing a greater good that is beyond themselves. And is there also compensation involved in some cases as well? In some cases, yeah. There are some, like, as we mentioned before, there are some specific um, agreements in, in yeah, agreements with the Biodiversity Conservation Trust that you might be compensated. Not all of them are. There are some grants and fundings that can support landholders and farmers uh, through land care and local land services support like fencing or other actions that might be doing in their land. Okay, and so what kind of compensation can people receive? There is economical compensation and that's when I'm talking about grants and that's that side of compensation. But there is also a huge satisfaction of looking at the land and seeing the land regenerate and the trees come up and the species come up like I just heard that they, there was the emus were coming back and were helping to spread the seeds. So, you know, it might not be necessarily economical compensation. What I'm not saying it's not important mm. to support people's life, but there is also this joy of seeing the landscape coming back together. So what changes have people made to their land? Well, sometimes they decide to to fence areas so animals wouldn't uh, trespass these areas. Uh, the cattle wouldn't graze as much in there. Or like riverbanks, they're often fenced so it doesn't cause erosion. They plant native trees. They work with nature. For example, I, I saw this uh, lovely farm where the diversity of beetles would actually contribute to the health of the livestock, but also the soil, because it would um, break the the livestock's cats, uh, its cat uh, quicker and contributes to to everything. You mm. know, the livestock health, their own pleasure of seeing it, and also the landscape. And so, do you believe there are enough incentives out there to encourage more landholders, more farmers? Uh, to to go down this track? It's not necessarily an incentive in a monetary way. It's incentive because, you know, it's it's a personal thing and contributes to other levels of their life. And so what do you want to do with the research? Well, the plans with all this information is to build for each person that I'm 
I'm sharing at the moment um, an idea of how they were able to see the results in their lives and their um, landscape in, in hopefully combining all these different fields. We can see patterns on how to support them better to keep going in the long term because, you know, if you can't support yourself or your family, you're probably going to stop doing what you're doing and try to find ways mm. to support. And so what kind of support? Uh, I think for different people, would it could be different types of support. There might be some, if, if you don't have uh, regular income that would allow you to do what you're doing at the moment, you definitely would need a financial support. But there's also a big component of uh, social support, of being connected with like-minded people, having a feedback that, you know, you're doing the right thing or actually seeing what's going on on your land of like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. Things are coming back. There's this type of support. Sometimes, um, also a little bit of the background knowledge on what to do to actually receive these results. And there will be personal needs that could be fulfilled in that sense. So more support that's on offer at the moment. I don't think it's as easy for people to know what support is available. And I tend to say we are normally overwhelmed with emails and social media so unless the person is very dedicated and look for it, they might not know where the support is. Researcher Erica Nolasco speaking to Tim Fuchs on her tour of the Central West this month, Biodiversity Trust. Have you done any of that? I'd love to hear from you. 0467 922 How is that system working? Are you actually getting payments? How does that fit into the sort of economic mix of your business? Um, you can also text us via the ABC Listen app. So if you're listening to the live stream for the Country Hour, uh, off your local radio transmitter or anyone else's actually in New South Wales, um, there's a little button you can push there. You have to be logged into the to the app, but um, that's a great way of communicating with us. It comes straight into our feed and we can read it out. Like Pam, who has messaged us about the, that hairy panic story we're going to play shortly. Uh, is She's wondering if it's also called windmill grass. Well, I'm not really sure about that, um, Pam, but I'm, it's, it's panicum effusum, commonly known as hairy panic or backside grass or wombuta or wombuta i'm not quite sure where the pronunciation is wombuta snow 0467922684 if you've encountered that uh, there's quite a bit of it down the south of the coast uh, sorry the south of the state and uh still on that idea of biodiversity the founder of the regenerative agriculture alliance and director of farming together lorraine gordon has left southern cross university after seven years to join carbon farming company climate friendly as the principal of the natural capital australia division the beef producer from ebor in northern new south wales is a former new south wales rural woman of the year and last December was recognised for her visionary leadership as a finalist in the Bankshire Foundation's New South Wales Sustainability Awards. Ms Gordon says the urgency of the climate crisis and climate friendly's focus on restoring carbon, repairing nature and advancing reconciliation is behind her switch. She told Kim Honan about the work that's already been done and the goals to achieve net zero. So here we are, we've had the latest IPCC report come out, we're trying to hold things at 1.5 degrees. That's going to take enormous teamwork, enormous collaboration, and we know about collaboration because the best collaboration I've ever seen was born out of Southern Cross University's Farming Together program. 
So we know how to do that. So I can bring those sort of skills, hopefully, to Climate Friendly. But it is going to take teamwork. It's going to take collaboration. And it needs to be done in a way that we keep our rural communities both productive and sustainable. So it's not about locking up huge areas of land and just letting them go back to wilding. That's, that doesn't work. Humans are a part of nature. We are a part of ecology. And we still need to be able to work with nature and ecology to bring about change. And so it's about keeping our rural communities and our landscapes productive but sustainable and achieving that net zero for future generations. And basically that is what Climate Friendly is wanting to do. Um, but they do it backed by science, which was very important to me. And they, like I said, they do it with integrity and ethics. And they've got some fantastic runs on the board. They are working with farmers, they're working with um, traditional owners, natural resource management organisations, environmental groups. They're working with everyone. What has Climate Friendly achieved so far when it comes to restoring carbon through all these multiple projects? Yeah, well, look, Climate Friendly had some pretty ambitious targets, um, but, you know, they are halfway to meeting them, basically, which is just astounding. At last count, Climate Friendly had 160 projects on the ground covering 10 million hectares. So what that effectively means is that they are restoring some 30,000 tonnes of carbon. Now, by 2050, that 30,000 tonnes of carbon will become 50,000 tonnes of carbon. And they're aiming for 150,000 tonnes of carbon by 2025. You know, that's astounding. I mean, what they've done so far is the equivalent of oh, a 20 million old eucalypt forest, if, you know, if I can put it into some sort of context of these numbers. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty impressive record. They're about profit for purpose. Every cent that is earned goes back into trying to reach these incredibly ambitious targets, which they're effectively doing. The sense of urgency is there. They're certainly not dragging the chain, yet we're still working with scientists. We're still working with universities. It's that real combination of both coming together, but with a sense of urgency to build scale as quickly as possible. And initially, your focus will be on driving the natural capital pilot projects. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about yeah. what the plan is there? This is really, really exciting, and particularly, I think, for land managers. Because what this means is at last we can actually value the good work that farmers do in looking after their environment. So it's putting a value on the natural capital assets that farmers are working towards building, restoring or repairing or what they already have in place and are going to keep in place for future generations. But what that means at the grassroots is basically that banks can actually see value in the natural capital that's being restored or sustained and that at long last that value will sit on balance sheets. Not only that, insurance companies will be prepared to insure farms that will stack up in a changing climate and in drought because that's now the question. Everything might look good now, but how is this farm going to stack up if the temperatures increase or it doesn't get rain? So this becomes vitally important, not only for farmers and land managers, but it becomes important for the finance sector 
and it becomes important for insurance companies. But all of a sudden we've realised that without these vital assets, these environmental assets, we don't have farms. We don't have future generations. We don't have produce. We don't have food and we perish. So at last we're valuing them and we're putting, it sounds crazy to put an economic value on something, but until you put an economic value on something in the world, it's not recognised, unfortunately. So there'll be a number of KPIs um, to be met by those land managers and traditional owners and NRMs that actually want to be able to, for instance, seek cheaper loans. So they'll be able to get the likes of green loans and sustainability loans, which are going to be a lot less than your normal everyday loans that are out there now. So they'll be able to get a discount on their lending products because of the good work that they're actually doing um, for their environment and for their landscapes. So that's a real reward in itself. That's Northern New South Wales beef producer Lorraine Gordon, who's now Principal of Natural Capital Australia with the company Climate Friendly. And we had a text from someone who hasn't put their name or area on it, but they say, here we go again with the climate propaganda. CO2 is just 0.04% of the atmosphere. Quite a few people talking about uh, about uh, hairy panic and the names that can go with it. Someone earlier said, maybe is it windmill grass? Tim says uh, in the central uh, or in the west they call it blow away grass and uh, John says that's what they call it um, in his area around Armadale as well. And uh, we had a text photo from Callum in Urinquinty and he says uh, here's what it looked like this morning after a couple of hours, I guess, for the wind blowing and he's got a picture of his front door half covered by um, this particular glass, a uh, grass all bundled up against it. So uh, great image, Callum. Thanks for sending that through. Oh four six seven nine double two six eight four is our text line, and you can message us via the ABC Listen app as well if you're listening to the Country Hour on the live stream. So uh, yes, hairy panic. It's been a wet and stormy season across the southwest of New South Wales, and that's led to an outbreak of summer grass. And uh, grass normally a good thing, but not this one. It produces a seed that can then detach from the plant and becomes a tumbleweed. Panicum effusum is uh, the scientific name. It has common names like hairy panic, backside grass, and uh, is it wombuta, wombuta, snow? Uh, Marie Catalinic is a bus driver and a farmer near Henty in the southwest, and she came across a wall of it this week, as she explains to Simon Wallace. Oh, there's a bit of hairy panic lying around. Come around sweeping bends and find it across the road. So what do you do? Slow down, <laughs> make sure there's nothing else on the road, hopefully under it. And what size bus are you in? I'm in a small coaster. So yeah, a 22 seater. 20, 22, 24 seater, yeah. You've came across that, what, about five feet in height, 1,500? Oh, it was, it was nearly to the roof of the bus when I went, had to go through it, yeah. That was two days ago, wasn't it? Yeah, two days ago in the afternoon. Literally blocked the whole road. You slow down and put the hazards oh, on? You, or? You, you slow down, hazards won't help you when no one can see you. <laughs> Have you seen it like that before? Um, I've seen it bad, but not in that quantity in one spot. Yeah, yeah. They just built up for some reason at that corner? Uh, there's there's a dirt road coming down into a T-intersection onto a bitumen road and it was obviously the right angle and it's blowing down the dirt road and just piled up on the road. And then we've had a bit of a rain, the wind's changed, yeah. what's happened? It's pretty well blown away now, yep, yep. Not much there at the moment, but yeah, there are people complaining about it all around the houses and yeah, 
Yeah. Did you check the bus after? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cleaned out everything out of the grill and around the front. Yep. <laughs> Windscreen wipers were stuck around it. <laughs> it was all matted up underneath or in the front? Uh, it, not so much. It mostly blew off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you think it was dangerous? Well, it is a risk area because, number one, you're going into something and you can't even see. You, you cannot see. It went over the roof of the bus. And it, there was no way, if I'd gone on the wrong side of the road and someone was coming, you'd have had a head on. So I had to sort of stick to my side of the road and hopefully for the best. So over the top of the bus, so we're looking at a car's... 4.2 metres. 4.2 metres high. Yeah, the height of the bus, yeah. It may, it may have been 3.5 metres high, but when you hit it, it just went everywhere. And what would you say to people who were out and about driving around in it? Because uh, it's blown somewhere. I notified a couple of people, beware, yeah. Who live on that road or yeah. around there? Yeah, that I knew would have been travelling that road. But you've never seen it that bad. Not, not in a um, pile up like that on a main road. No, no. I have heard of it before. I've heard of it years ago up Parks Forbes Way, where there was actually a tunnel on the main road where cars were going through it. Haven't seen it, but I have heard. And you've noticed this season be pretty bad, obviously. Depending where, if there's a lot of um, that hairy panic feed in the paddocks, yes, yeah. And some areas are eaten down pretty well and you won't have it. Because animals eat it, isn't it, when it's green before they release once, that thing? Once it starts to dry, animals won't touch it. Once it goes to head, they won't touch it. It's actually too coarse, too dry for any animal to eat it. You've got livestock? Yeah. How does it look at your place? Oh, that's pretty well chewed down, so I haven't got much. <laughs> oh, sheep, cattle? Cattle. Cattle, <laughs> yeah. But they won't touch it, will they, once it gets that? Once, once it starts to get the head on it, they won't touch it. And it actually is slightly noxious. Not bad, but mixed with other stuff, it's all right. But on its own, it's not good for them. And what do you call it? <laughs> I've heard of it a lot of names, but yeah, it's hairy panic. <laughs> At work, we're saying backside grass, not that other term. Uh, someone called it angel wings once, and I said to him, I'd never heard anything angel about it ever. So what can be done? Rodney Anderson is chair of the Murray Local Land Services Regional Weeds Committee. It's hairy panic. It's a summer sort of growing grass. So it germinates in sort of spring and, and summer and flowers up right up through to autumn, depending on the season. Yeah, but it is a real problem. We're getting a number of calls about roadsides wanting to put signs up uh, because it's, you know, four or five foot deep across the road. Um, we can go and put signs up and things like that, but the wind changes and it blows away and it's just a problem on the different road the next day. It's just because there has been so much rain uh, so often over the summer period, it just keeps germinating and, and um, even our landholders out here, some of them on their second and third spray to control it for their cropping program, but they just can't keep up with it and there's just not enough stock around anymore to keep it down. I think that's the problem. And they eat it prior to flowering and then it flowers and then it, it blows away. And I think the amount of wind we've had over the last sort of week or so has created a bigger problem that might normally stay on the ground where it is and just sort of um, break up over a period of time. But the wind we've had is just moving it around everywhere. It's, um, it's a really big problem for fence lines as well. I just noticed coming home to the north of Urana, it's, it's actually nearly pushed a fence right over. It's built up against the fence and the wind we've had, it's, it's um, nearly destroyed the fence altogether. It's also a problem in irrigation channels too. It blows into the irrigation channels and when it gets to the culvert or the block or whatever it might be, it blocks it up there and then doesn't really let the water come through. So they've got to clean it out manually, otherwise the channel will overflow as well. It is a really big problem. Um, I don't know what we do about it, to be honest with you, other than not having rain. 
Rodney Anderson, chair of the Murray LLS Regional Weeds Committee, finishing that report by Simon Wallace, who sent me a note to say it's uh, Wambuta, uh, which is another name for hairy panic, Wambuta Snow. And some great pictures uh, came through earlier for that. Thanks for that. Um, people who sent pictures of it covering their front doors and, uh, and the roads. She was saying earlier it blocked the road and went up to the roof of the bus. We've also had a couple of texts, uh, cynical texts, about the whole carbon farming biodiversity stuff. So um, lots of different views on that. 0467 922 684 is our SMS. Uh, Adam Story's here to tell us what's going on in the news. Good afternoon, Adam. Well, they found more asbestos, uh, as I think uh, everyone was expecting. Yeah. Uh, dozens of new sites, particularly across Sydney, uh, are now undergoing testing. Uh, testing is underway at seven schools after they received garden mulch from the same manufacturer. Um, that's been linked to 25 other sites. Uh, there's also a private hospital and a supermarket in Sydney's northwest that are among the latest sites being tested. Uh, this comes after the new task force was announced yesterday to look into the matter, which has uh, also uh, seen uh, fire and emergency services brought in uh, to the, Do they know uh, what the Environment so- Protection Authority. There is some, they know the source, don't they? But they're not sure how it's got in. They're not sure how it's gotten in, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so... The Premier is uh, speaking probably about one o'clock this afternoon, um, and no doubt I think we'll just going to be hearing about more sites right. over the next. Uh, over I wonder the if they've delivered to any regional areas. This they well they do fear it has actually spread throughout the regions, mm. um, but yet to be. Uh, yet and to how be really identified. is the risk? Do you reckon? Have you been following that closely? Where? Uh, I, uh, I couldn't no, know. That'd be my question. I'm sure you've heard about it elsewhere. No, no. Right, yeah. What else? But I would keep away from it just as a precautionary <laughs> note, <laughs> just in case. I wouldn't well, go, my dad built I wouldn't houses. Go play, and I'm don't go sure playing in the mulch this weekend, yeah, Dave. No, okay. Yeah, okay. Well, you know that yeah. park in Roselle. That is where I play football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't go rolling in the mulch very often. Well, you don't play in the you no. don't play in the no. mulch. No. Yeah. If you do, you shouldn't. No. Um, in Victoria, um, they've had uh, confirmation now that uh, during those wild storms, um, around uh, 16 homes uh, were lost. Uh, and in the separate disaster, which was the bushfires, uh, they've now found that 44 homes uh, were lost in wow. those bushfires. And there's about 33,000 customers in the South Gippsland region who still don't have power. That's after half a million people lost power. A farmer uh, died. in the week, and the farmer died. Yeah, we'll hear about that. Yeah. Also, up in Queensland, uh, there's an investigation after a woman was killed in flooding in the northwest. Officers say the body of a 28-year-old Townsville woman was found in a flooded car at Dutchess, southeast of Mount Isa, yesterday afternoon. Overseas, the White House National Security uh, spokesperson John Kirby has ramped up the pressure on Israel over its planned operation in Rafah, saying it would be a disaster without a credible plan. Earlier, Israel said it will press ahead with the offensive against Hamas in Rafah. Um, but Mr Kirby says they're continuing to speak to Israeli counterparts about the situation. And they say that under the current circumstances, uh, it would uh, basically spell disaster. Uh, now, back home, a federal police are threatening industrial action over pay and working conditions. They've lodged an application to the Fair Work uh, Commission for protected action. And in a good news story, Sir Paul McCartney has been reunited with a bass guitar that he used on uh, hits including Love Me Do. It was stolen from the back of a van in London. Uh, and there was a project set up called The Lost Bass in an effort <laughs> no to find way. it. Really? Uh, and uh, apparently it's uh, been returned in what sort of condition, uh, we don't know. 
But, uh, so Paul do. is don't you don't know, go singing, please, Dave. Please, uh, please, <laughs> please, love me, do. Dave's so actually a very talented musician. <laughs> oh, very talented singer. Obviously. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk to the bureau in a minute. Thanks, Adam. Okay. Uh, we had people talking about that um, uh, carbon stuff and. Uh, one saying, convince us that saving the planet is the end, Lorraine. It sounds more like the means of transferring wealth and power from the masses to others. And someone else saying, it's sad that there are people out there who can ignore record heat waves, droughts, storms and fires and pretend they know something about it. You can text us on 0467922684. And let's find out what's happening with the weather. Joanne Parks at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What's, uh, what's on the go? Uh, yes, the showers and storms across the, the states, that will be the main story over the coming days and because of plenty of moisture and the ongoing easterly airstream. Uh, and so uh, we, uh, we, we did this piling up of moisture and we expect showers and storms mainly posing a risk of localized moderate to heavy falls and leading to flashy flooding. And for your references, we had a fair bit of uh, rainfall along the coast, especially in the states far northeast and along the uh, central part of the coast uh, yesterday into early this morning. And the highest rainfall was uh, 95 millimeters at at Couch Creek in the state's far northeast, uh, um, uh, followed by Upper Baringa and all around the Tweed Head and the Mawilumba areas, and those areas received more than 90 millimeters of rainfall, and also uh, some parts uh, uh, of the central part of the coast between Newcastle and the eastern suburbs of Sydney also have received 50 to 70 millimeters of rainfall with slow-moving showers and storms, and looks like it will be the risk at, uh, mainly along the north coast. Um, for the rest of the, today, and uh, I understand that there may, uh, may have been some flash flooding in some parts because of the past rainfall. Uh, yeah, good news a, is a flood alert it, on the Tweed Shire Council Facebook page. Yes, we had a history of severe thunderstorms uh, leading to uh, heavy rainfall and flash flooding up until um, 11 a.m. covering that area, and uh, the rain rate uh, is, has been easing in that area, but the risk uh, hasn't really completely gone yet. So although the storm warning has been cancelled for time being, resurrection of uh, storm warning in that part of, of the state is quite possible, and not just along the north coast, uh, but also uh, northern ranges and slopes and the central ranges and uh, and Hunter and uh, some parts of the central west as well. So uh, something to uh, keep, uh, we needed to be um, monitoring. So keep yourself up to date with the latest storm warning if you live in that area. Yeah, there was and something then, uh, around Bar and one of the schools closed on the hinterland there with some flash flooding and trees down on some of the roads. So take care if you're driving in that area. Yes, yeah, I think that, that that's useful information. Uh, and uh, and also, uh, during the weekend, uh, um, the areas, uh, the risk of severe thunderstorms and heavy rainfall will be somewhat shifting to the southern and southeastern part of the state. Uh, that means the risk areas will be at the center of the uh, Heavy rainfall areas will be shifting to the central and the southern part of the state. So, um, again, you know, during the weekend, if you live in that area, um, keep monitoring the bureau's storm warnings. And looks like a similar weather pattern will prevail uh, throughout the outlook period until uh, the, uh, at least until the latter part of the next week. All right. Anything else we need to be aware of? 
Uh, well, uh, yes, uh, as I said, you know, although the storm warning has been temporarily cancelled, you know, it can appear again. So, uh, you know, keep yourself up to date with the, you know, the latest storm warnings for, from the bureau's pages or listen to emergency broadcast if the warnings, uh, warnings are sent out. But, uh, and also, you know, uh, don't expect to dry weather conditions on horizon because these showers and the storms will be likely to remain across the east, at least the eastern half of the state through the outlook days. Okay, thanks, Joanne. My pleasure. Joanne Park, who's at the Bureau of Meteorology. It's 19 to 1 on the country hour. And uh, let's have a look at those storms in Victoria's southeast from uh, early this week. They left a trail of destruction on farms in that south and west Gippsland region, a Merbu North dairy farmer died while mustering cattle on Tuesday night when he was hit by flying debris. At Colville, just north of Merbu North, Lisa Hilbrick got the fright of her life when she was bringing in her cows for milking. My 11-year-old and myself were decided to go get the milkers a little bit earlier that um, particular day because the storm was coming and usually we always lose power here. And as we were bringing the cows closer to the shed, I commented to my 11-year-old, look at the formation of those clouds. It was the most unusual swirling um, motion of clouds I've ever seen. And we weren't very far from the cow shed and we were bringing the milkers up the laneway and an almighty powerful gust of wind picked up and twisted the top of a cypress tree out which landed on our milkers in the laneway. Um, very close to hitting me under the tree. Um, and we had several cows stuck under the cypress tree. Unfortunately, one died pretty much straight away. We've got one that is down and doesn't look like she's going to get up. And we had several with fairly serious um, cuts and swelling and that on their faces and legs. One got caught in the barbed wire fence. Um, we've got numerous trees down on fences. We've got no power. We had to dump milk. Um, very, very limited foam reception. Um, it was quite scary. I'm running a generator just to keep the fridge going at the house and the pressure pump because all our property runs on pressure pumps, which is power. Um, Lisa, yeah. that must have been really scary, particularly the moment the tree fell. Very scary, considering my 11-year-old usually likes to run up behind the milkers to push them up onto the yard for me. And to think that, you know, he could have been um, seriously injured or killed under that tree as as well as myself was terrifying. Oh, I bet. Um, I bet, Lisa. Uh, How how has he been since since that moment? um, He's... Actually, he's not too bad. I've got a, an older son and, and my 11-year-old, and they're like little troopers. They helped. They actually helped um, free some cows under the tree after it had fallen. Um, no, no he, he's very good. He actually attends Mervyn North Primary School, um, so he can't go to school either because they got hit quite bad at Mervyn North. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, you mentioned had our, you've had to dump milk. Do you have any idea how much milk you've had to dump? Um, we were lucky enough that we, we, it was probably about 500 litres of milk we dumped because we managed to milk the cows before the power went off. Um, so we didn't milk them yesterday, but last night we got the electrician to um, find a generator for us to wire into our shed um, so we could at least milk the cows um, and refrigerate the milk for 
today for the milk to be picked up. But other than that, we we don't have power and we don't know when the power is coming back on. Power, and you even said at the start of this call, Lisa, you, you've lost power in some of these similar storm or, or weather events in, in Gippsland before. Is it frustrating, I suppose, mm-hmm. the level of service you're getting with power at the moment? Very frustrating. Um, and especially this time around when all the um, internet access and stuff has been down as well. We can't we can't ring out. We can't um, find out emergency alerts. I had to drive into our nearest town last night just to sit in front of the post office to get Wi-Fi to look on the emergency app to see when power may be coming back on. It's very frustrating. That's uh, what's been going on in Victoria at the moment, so quite a distressing period. One of the farm, one farmer in that area has died, Coalfield farmer Lisa Hilbrick, speaking to Warwick Long. And uh, since we spoke to Lisa, she's had her power restored this morning, so they are making some progress there. Hello, I'm Rachel Mealy. Join me for The World Today. Mulch crisis. The list of contaminated sites continues to grow in Sydney, with asbestos found at seven schools and now a hospital and a supermarket. What steps are authorities taking? And Taylor Fever. The countdown is on until the first of the pop megastars concerts tonight at the MCG. We'll bring you all the Swifty excitement. The World Today at lunchtime. 14 to 1 on the country. Our David Clawton with you through until 1 o'clock. 0467 is our SMS. Still on water, authorities are letting out extra water from Wyangula Dam near Cowra to create some space for potential extra inflows. Water New South Wales has doubled releases from the storage in recent days to achieve a target of 97% of capacity. So obviously it's pretty full right now. The excess water will be captured downstream at Lake Brewster for some future use. Water New South Wales spokesman Tony Webber told Tim Fuchs it's important to manage the system. I oh, sorry, told uh, Hugh Hogan it's important to manage the system conservatively. So we've increased releases um, well beyond the inflow that we're receiving. And that's right, that's about managing the storage level. We met with our, our airspace reference panel um, recently and reached agreement that the target for the storage is about 97%. Um, so that, that's finding a balance between having some capacity in the dam to capture inflows if there is a, a, you know, a, a large storm or a significant rain event and maintaining that storage as high as we can, in, in, which reflects how precious that water really is to agriculture, communities and the environment. Speaking of how precious that water is, I suppose uh, we're lucky to be in this position to be making airspace given the forecast, I suppose, about six months to a year ago. That's right. So Wyangla's one of only a couple of major regional supply dams that has received quite a bit of inflow and, and, and we've been making releases for the entire time during that period. Um, you know, Wyangla's still about 97.5%. But if we look at some other dams that were equally as full during the La Nina period, you know, Burundong now is down to about 60%. Keep it, for example, 40%. So it just illustrates that it doesn't take a lot of dry weather for these storages in times of high demand over the summer to start to drop away. That's Tony Webber from Water New South Wales. On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour. Still on water. If you were listening yesterday, you would have heard the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, talking about the cost 
of a new round of water buybacks for the Murray-Darling Basin. The federal government will spend $205 million to permanently return 26 gigalitres of water to the environment every year. So what could this do to water prices or sales? Rural Co. water broker John Armstrong told Julie Kimbley there are plenty of irrigators who are willing to sell. There are a group of irrigators in us, particularly in the Riverland there, uh, who because of market conditions in, you know, in wine grapes uh, and those sorts of industries that are you know, considering a way out uh, for their future, right? whether they want to keep farming or whether they want to you know, get out. And, and being able to sell their water entitlement is a good way to fund you know, their retirement and, and to get out of the industry. And it, uh, right at now, the, the Commonwealth is basically the only buyer in the market. Every, every other buyer has pulled back on pricing, so the, the way the government has done this last round that was only in New South Wales, you know, has, has given the market indication of potentially what they're going to pay in the future. And it has made irrigators who are, who are considering a future away from the industry, uh, they're, they're like, well, maybe I can sell my water to the Commonwealth and, and get a premium. Do you think the recent rain has contributed to that? Uh, not really. It's, it's so that the rain has, you know, the weather and the rain has a lot of impact on, on the temporary allocation price, what the irrigator is paying day to day. But the actual ownership and the entitlement price is really driven by other factors, driven by the ability for people to pay for it. And that's probably the biggest driver, downward pressure on prices at the minute. Just, you know, it's and, it, and, and industries, right? You know, people are seeing the, the stress that the wine grape industry is under and table grapes and others. And they're just going, well, geez, maybe, maybe it's a good time to get out and sell water. And that's driven that price down. Is anyone saying that they want to sell water, you know, for the water recovery of the environment? So most, we, I have a couple of little clients uh, who, who are saying that, right? They're like, no, no, we want to sell our water to the environment, you know, to do that. Most people who are selling are going, how can I generate the best return? And it's, it's a matter of, right, I can sell on the market at, you know, price A, or I can sell the Commonwealth at price B, which from all reports is a significant premium. This $205 million figure, is that a figure you will expect will potentially encourage people to sell? Who, you, know, you know, people who were on the fence, do you think the price that they're getting for the water will encourage them to sell? I think, you know, the, the, the word going out there is that, you know, the Commonwealth under Bridging the Gap last year paid, you know, anywhere from 18 to 25% above the market price at the time. Now, none of this is confirmed yet because the government haven't released the actual volumes that they've bought. But this is what, what intel that's out there in the market, right, that, that irrigators are telling their friends that they, you know, sold this much water and got this much for it. So people have worked out they're paying this. And irrigators, sellers, especially those on the fence who might have a bit of spare water or who, you know, who got who retired farmers who've sold their property, kept their water again and haven't got a good return for that because of how wet it's been over the last few years. They're going, well, hang on, I can sell it to the Commonwealth and I can make this big premium on top of what it's worth and I can do something else with that money. Now, was the dollar amount surprising to you or did your industry already have a fair idea of how much the government might need to pay? I, I think the industry had a fair idea of what the government would have to pay to achieve its target. You know, and, and when you know, we were advising clients, uh, clients would come to us, we'd say, well, look, you can sell on the market at this price or you can sell to the government. Now, the government is a known buyer who, who has a target to buy a certain volume. So essentially, you know, it's what the market would call a captive buyer. So I'm like, you could sell on the market at this and get your money now or you, you play the game with government tenders and, you know, if you wanted to, you could offer it at a premium because they're either going to, like, for the, for the seller, there's no loss. They could sell it to the government at that premium or they can sell it on the market at, at whatever the market rate is. So most chose to enter that water at a premium. So there was this expectation in our industry beforehand that the government would have to pay a premium to get it. 
John Armstrong, water broker from Rural Co Water, speaking with Julie Kimberley on the Country Hour, eight minutes to one. And uh, going back to biosecurity issues and Varroa, the New South Wales Department of Primary Industry says it fully investigated a suspected case of Varroa mite in April 2021. That's 14 months before it was officially detected in Sentinel Hives at the Port of Newcastle, which then sparked the emergency response. The false alarm was mentioned by Northern New South Wales beekeeper Steve Fuller in his submission to the Red Imported Fire Ants Inquiry. He told Kim Honan the case raises concern about the Varroa mite response and what could have been done better. It's just really, really coincidence that... Um um, there was a false alarm 13 months before, and it sort of got swept under the carpet. Once it does get discovered, we've found that it has been in Australia for 18 months to two years. Now, was it a false alarm, or did we really miss the boat? These are things we've got to really address. Steve Fuller, who's also President of Crop Pollination Association of Australia. The DPI's Acting Chief Plant Protection Officer, Dr Shane Hetherington, spoke to Kim Honan about the investigations into that 2021 report. That report actually came into DPI on the 25th of April 2021. Um, it came from a beekeeper at Edgeworth. So that beekeeper was approximately 19 kilometres from um, the, the sentinel hives that we had at Port of Newcastle. So quite a distance. Quite a distance. When the, um, the pictures came in of the Varroa um, that... Um, were on the bees, we noticed that up in the top left corner there was a watermark um, from a a commercial bee scanning app. Um, Within 24 hours of that report coming in, we had a bee biosecurity officer um, go to that um, residence, the residence of that beekeeper, and thoroughly inspect um, those hives, um, found no evidence of of Varroa. when we investigated a little bit further, uh, we discovered that what had happened was that particular beekeeper had been trialling a piece of bee scanning software, um, an app, and had um, actually scanned some uh, test images, um, so some stock images that were on that um, that particular app. The purpose of those test images was to allow people to, to scan them and test that the app actually worked. Um, So he scanned those particular test images um, and those scanned test images were the ones that we saw. Um, We went back um, and within the last hour or so, one of my my teams actually showed me, um, we went back, had a look at the app um, and compared it to the images that were sent in um, and they were identical. So what was sent in to us wasn't an actual... um, wasn't an actual picture of his beehives. It was a test image off of the app. So it was a, a false alarm. There's been no covering up of varroa mite by the Department of Primary Industries. No covering up whatsoever. Um, it was just one of those one of those things. Um, you know, um, we occasionally get some confusion um, around the images that are supplied through our hotlines, um, and that was just a, a good example of that sort of thing. Has there been anyone charged yet with the illegal importation of queen bees or any type of equipment into the country? So the first answer, the, the answer that I can give you is that no at this stage. 
but the other thing is, um, you know, um, investigations are ongoing, but I can't really give you any details. Sorry. So the investigations have been ongoing for quite some time. I do believe it's with the um, federal government, with the with the AFP, but um, yeah. there's, there's been no updates since that. That was like, I guess, last year. Yeah, no update that I can provide. Sorry. Dr Shane Hetherington, who's the Acting Chief Plant Protection Officer with the New South Wales Department of Primary Industry and the Country Hour has contacted the Federal Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry for an update on Operation Decker. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Australian shoppers will start to see more locally grown cotton products in stores even as cotton production drops worldwide. Megan Hughes has the story. The Australian cotton industry has broken national records for its production in recent years. And while it's slowed this season, the industry's work to market itself as a sustainable fibre option has paid off. Industry body Cotton Australia has been working with brands and retailers for the past decade to encourage them to make their products with cotton grown in Australia. CEO Adam Kay says brands can apply to use a special Australian cotton mark on their products. The brands, they do their market research you know, Australians are very patriotic. They want to, if they can't buy Australian made, well, the next best thing's Australian grown. And, you know, the Australian grown product, and you'll see it um, in a lot of the brands and retails where you can buy clothes made out of Australian cotton, it's, uh, it's really resonating with the Australian public. So cotton grown in Australia is sent through cotton gins to be cleaned and baled before being exported to spinning mills in countries like Vietnam, where it's turned into yarn, which can be made into thread or fabric. Now, Cotton Australia said they've had a 91% increase in licensed products bearing the mark, totaling almost 29 million items. Good news for the cotton industry. Might see more cotton on the shelves from Australia. Time for markets. Stephen Adams is at the Tamworth store sale. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, David. Feeder operators and background has provided strong competition for an offering of 3,942 good quality store cattle in Tamworth. Included in the offering were drafts of yearling and weaner heifers, as well as cows and calves. Product sourced from Gloucester, Galgong, Barabah, Walker and Narrabri. And buying competition very strong from Gundawindi and Tarum in Queensland to background interests. Competition also from Dubbo and Dunnydoo, as well as considerable demand for various feeder orders. The best yearling steers, $1,000 to $1,500 per head, $45 to $73 per head dearer on two weeks ago. The lead of the weaner steers, $810 to $1,380, selling to much dearer trends, with many drafts in the vicinity of $375 to $463 cents a kilo. We have the balance of the offering still to be sold. Stephen Adams, MLA, in Tamworth store sale. Thanks, Stephen. Price is up there. Let's go to Griffith Sheep and Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers eased to 6,800 and the quality was plain of the usual big runs of heavy and extra heavy lambs were missing with a large percentage trade in light lambs. Dorpers made up over 50%. Not all the usual buyers were operating in a cheaper market. Prices fell 12 to 15 across the trades and 5 to 10 on heavyweights. Two score processing lambs to 18 kilos, 41 to 92 dollars. They average 400 cents. Prime trades, 20 to 24 kilos, 100 to 168, most average 600 to 620, with the odd grain-fed lamb out to 700 cents. 24 to 26 kilos, 158 to 179, averaging 630. The heavyweights, 170 to 192, extra heavies, 215 to 226. The heavy and extra heavy lambs average 650 to 680. 
The best target reached 110. Mutton numbers eased to 2,800 and prices were firm. Merino U sold to 106 and crossbreds $98. Most average between 230 and 280. And this has been Graham Richard. Thanks, Graham. That's our program for today. I'm David Coulton. We'd love to have your company back on midday on Monday. And don't forget our website for more rural news.